morning. This is Grandparents Day at Iowa. We'd like to welcome you. I got to thinking the other day about how different um, life is today than when your grandparents were your age. Your grandparents did not have cell phones. They had one phone that plugged into the wall and had a cord on it, and they couldn't talk a far, any farther away than the cord would reach. And if they wanted to talk to their boyfriend, they had to find a closet close by so mom and dad couldn't hear him. It was just a, no cell phones, no computers, no GPS, no Netflix. How did they survive? I mean, tell me. The world is a different place today than when they grew up. Values seem to have shifted, attitudes have changed, and because of that, I will tell you there are some things your grandparents do not understand about you. Let me, let me tell you something grandma does not understand. She does not understand tattoos. Yeah, yeah. got an amen from a grandma here. I mean, back, back, in, back in the day, tattoos were only for the wild and rebellious few. Now, if you're a youth pastor major and you don't have a tattoo, someone wonders what's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, there's a cross or there's a fish or there's doulos or you got a Bible verse on your bicep or something like that. Grandpa does not understand pierced noses. He does not get it at all. And neither one of them understands why you would actually buy jeans that already have holes in them. Because <laughs> in our era, they did not. When you got a hole in them, mom patched it for you. It's a different world. If we took time today to discover the ways we're different, we would be here the entire chapel and still have time left over. We come from different backgrounds, we're different ages, we're different genders, we're different ethnicities. We, some of us are you know, a country mouse, some of us are the city mouse. I mean, urban or country, it's different. Some of us grew up in churches that were small, some of us grew up in churches that were large. We have different theological idiosyncrasies. We have different musical tastes. Some of you cheer for the Chicago Cubs. Everyone else is wrong. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Not much. But every difference is an opportunity for misunderstanding. It really is. Today, however, I don't want to talk about our differences. I really want to talk about something we share in common. And learning some lessons from something we share in common, perhaps we'll be able to apply those lessons to things that might be a little bit differently. So I've, I'd like to take us to Scripture today, to Matthew chapter 14. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 with their help. He sends them out on the water. They get in trouble because the water is just a bit challenging. Jesus comes walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. They're afraid. Peter says, if it's you, let me come and walk on the water. By the way, that's exactly what Peter should have said because disciples are supposed to do whatever their rabbi's doing. The real question is, where were the other 11? They should have been out on the water too because they're doing what the rabbi is doing. But he gets caught up in his fear and he begins to sink. He loses sight of Jesus and Jesus rescues him. And the result is that there is worship. I want to suggest to you that what we just read in a humorous way is really a snapshot moment in Peter's life that's repeated again and again and again where he's a man of faith and then he's a man of fear. That faith and fear and faith and fear and faith and fear repeat through his life. 
When I think of Peter, I tend to think of his courage. I tend to think of his boldness. He's the guy who's first would speak up and say the big statement about Jesus. He's the guy who tended to take risks. But I think we miss how often he was afraid. Let me just walk you through it a little bit. The very first exposure, among the first exposures that Peter has to Jesus is Jesus is right by the lakeshore where Peter and his brothers are fishing. And there's a crowd gathering around. And Jesus, in order to have space to speak, stands up in Peter's boat and says, push out from shore. And they push out from shore. And Jesus preaches this sermon. And uh, then when he's done, he says to Peter, Peter, drop your nets over the side to catch some fish. And Peter basically says, hey, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. Uh, I know fishing. You know carpentry. We've been fishing all night. We didn't get anything. But because you said it, we'll do it. And they drop their nets over the side. And they get so many fish that his boat can't handle it. He calls his buddies, James and John, over with their boat. Their boat can't handle it. They're about to sink. And it says Peter falls to his knees. Not enough room to kneel in there for a guy my age. And says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch fish. Peter, in that moment of miraculous moment, is fearful. A couple of chapters later, Peter and the other disciples are out in a boat. Jesus is asleep in the stern. A storm comes up. They're frantic. Those who are not, see, not, are not fishermen, those who are the, the, the farmers and the tax collectors, they're probably panicked because they're on this water and it's unfamiliar to them. Those who are on the water are a bit scared as well. I'm guessing some of them are rowing. Maybe they're messing with a sail. The ones who don't know what to do are bailing as hard as they can and they wake Jesus up with a gentle reminder, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die here I'm guessing the scriptures you read the story did not say and everyone was afraid except for Peter I'm guessing they're all a little panicked about what's happening the boat's taken on water and they're waking Jesus up so he can bail and he stands up and says peace be still and the winds and the waves stop and they think who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him. There's fear and faith combined. Another story you get with Peter is not long before Christ's death. He's in the upper room with his disciples and he looks to Peter and says, Pete, Satan's going to sift you. He's going to tempt you. He's going to press you. And, it's gonna, and, and when you fail, get up and turn around and help your brothers. And Peter says, when I fail, <laughs> Not me. These other yahoos, they may fail, but not me. I'll go to my death for you. And Jesus says, Peter, by the time the rooster crows in the morning, you'll have denied me three times. Denied to even know me. Not long after that, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. Everybody runs in fear. Peter muscles up courage, follows Jesus at his distance. Jesus is on trial. Peter's there on the edge. And then this servant girl says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter, what does he do? No. Why? Fear? Someone else asks the same question. No. Fear? Someone else asks the same question. I recognize your accent. You've got to be one of his. Not me. Calling down curses from heaven on himself. Fear, fear, faith, fear, faith, fear, faith. Jesus is buried. 
He, res- he rises from the dead. After 40 days, he and the disciples go outside of town and Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll have power to be my witnesses. And, and then Jesus goes back to heaven and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and there's a, a fabulous story in the second chapter of Acts where Peter and the other disciples get up and they begin to preach boldly and people come to Christ, not just a few, not just a hundred, not just a thousand, 3,000 people in one day. I'm a lifetime pastor and I will tell you that's a good altar call. <laughs> it really is, you know. And then the next day, uh, or so, shortly thereafter, at least, they're walking into the temple and there's this crip, lame guy there and they reach out and say, we don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he's da- probably dancing around and shouting and screaming and getting attention and people gather to hear another sermon and there's enough of a commotion, enough of a crowd that the authorities are afraid the Romans might react and they arrest him and take, keep him in jail overnight. And the next day, they bring them in for a hearing and it says, they were amazed by their courage. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. So you go, yeah, he's finally got it. And they they tell him to shut up, to not talk about Jesus any longer. But they say, you judge for yourself. Peter and John say, you judge for yourself. Is it right to listen to you or is it right to listen to God? As for us, we're going to listen to God. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. And they're all in for Jesus. And in the next couple of chapters, the same thing happens again. They're beaten this time and they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing they've been counted worthy of suffering for the name and you think he's finally got it but then there's this interesting passage in the book of Galatians and it recounts an incident that happens about 10 years later 10 years after Pentecost Paul Saul and Barnabas are in Antioch and they're connecting with Gentile believers for the first time about the faith has spread into the Gentile community. And, we, and, and, and these guys are sent to educate them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul and Barnabas are there and they're hanging out together and they're doing something really strange in those days. They're eating together with Gentiles. Now, and if you don't know it, Jews and Gentiles didn't share table fellowship together. They just did not. Jewish dietary laws considered what Gentiles ate unclean and eating with Gentiles was improper. And so they never did, except now here in Antioch, they are starting to do it for among almost the very first time because fellowship among one another among believers is so key and and Peter shows up to see what's going on and Peter who's a devout Jew who would have considered Gentile eating practices unclean he understands that community and relationship and fellowship is even more important so he starts eating with them and hanging out with them and having fellowship with them until some guys come from Jerusalem some Jews from 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 James who's head of the church in Jerusalem and when he shows up when they show up it says Peter for fear of the Jews for fear of what the Jewish people would say withdrew from his fellowship he broke fellowship with the Gentiles because he was afraid of what people would say about him and that's in Galatians chapter 2 now before we get too critical of Peter we probably ought to acknowledge that fear is something we all deal with you kids look at your grandparents and think they have it all together they have some fears among them they're, they're afraid of running out of money They're no longer making money. 
They're afraid of running out of money and the fear comes in two ways. Some of them are afraid they're going to get sick and spend it too fast. Others are afraid they're going to live too long and outlive their money. And something that people of my generation often sense is we've been in significant places in our life and people paid attention to us. And after we retire, we sometimes wonder what our platform is and if we really matter in the world any longer. Now, grandparents, you look at your grandchildren and you think, look at the world that's ahead of them and they think everything is going great. But you know what your grandkids are a little afraid of? College costs a lot of money. And they're afraid of running out of money before they get their college bills paid. And then they're afraid of not getting a job to pay it off. And then they're afraid of not being significant. They're just going to be some kind of ordinary drone that nobody ever pays pays attention to and when you get down to it there's similar fears they're just on different ends of the age spectrum fear is something that grabs most of us at some time maybe that's why one of the most common commands of scripture is fear not don't be afraid so here's the question I ask did Peter ever get to the place where he was not afraid and the answer is I don't know A better question is really this. Did he learn to manage himself in the face of fear in a healthy way? Nelson Mandela put it pretty well. He said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Tradition tells us that Peter died a martyr's death, that he was crucified but it was crucifixion with special circumstances. He didn't consider himself worthy of dying like Jesus does. So tradition tells us that when they led him to the cross, he asked to be crucified hanging upside down in a more painful situation. Was he afraid? Maybe part of him was. But did he act in courage anyway? You bet he did. How did he get there? How did he get to the place where courage won? I want to take you to one more passage of scripture. It's a short one and we won't spend much time on it. But I think there are three lessons that we can pull out of it. Three or four lessons that will help us in our stage of life. Peter writes to his followers, to people who are influenced by him. He's late in his life. It's not long before his death. He says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Three or four things. The first thing he says is humble yourself. One of the most common questions that we ask in life is what about me? What about me? Variations on that is what will people think of me? Will they make fun of me? Will they accept me? What will happen to me? Will I get recognition? Will I win? Will I get hurt? Will people make fun of me? Will I succeed? What about me? What about me? What about me? And I will tell you that as long as you're more worried about the what about me question than the difference you might make for God, you will always be a captive for fear because the devil will whisper into your ear, you won't matter. People will laugh at you. You won't succeed. You'll fail. You can't do this. The me focus will cause you to protect yourself and keep you from taking chances and from acting boldly. Let me give you a great clue in life. It is not about you. It is not about me. 
It is about us living in such a way that Jesus Christ is glorified and others fall down and worship him. Second clue from Peter, trust God. Cast your anxieties on him. Fear rises. It's probably inevitable. But you get to choose what you do with it. Whether you're 75 and worried about your future or 21 and worried about your future, you get to choose that God really does love you as much as he says he does. And as someone who loves you passionately, he's going to come around you and strengthen you to face any, t- any attack and any problem. It does not mean that life will be problem-free. There, are no, there is no such thing as a problem-free life. It doesn't mean that there will be no pain. There are no lives without pain. But don't be paralyzed by your fear. Cast your anxiety on him. And when you're scared, say, God, I'm scared. Admit it. Third thing is obey daily. Peter writes, stay alert. Stand firm. The evil one will continually try to surprise you with fear. When you least expect it, he'll come up and whisper, hey, what about you? You can't do this. Expect the attack. Don't be paralyzed by it. And take whatever is the the next step of obedience. You know, when Peter got out of the boat, he walked on water first. I will tell you, he was a fisherman. He knew what water was like. He knew that when you're in the boat, you know, that first, that first step had to be the hardest. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Another step, another step, another step of faith until he began to think, what about me? And fear caused him to sink. Now, as we end chapel today, I want to take these three lessons. Now, I want to apply them to areas not that we share in common, but to some areas where we're different. See, it's not just fear we share in common. We share in common our differences. We each have tendencies in life. Do you ever notice how some of us tend to be critical and judgmental? And that's just our default approach to life. We know the Bible tells us not to judge each other, but we fall to it again and again and again and again, and we think that people who don't do it our way are somehow doing it wrong. Do you notice how some of us are obstinate and oppositional? I've noticed that once in a while because I I, I know people who say, I kind of like chapel, I just wish they didn't make me go to it. It's not chapel you object to. It's someone telling you you should not object to chapel. Some of us have personal preferences that have turned into moral values and that we have then tried to enforce on other people. And you say, you ought to believe the way I believe. The way the other person sees the world is wrong as far as we're concerned. All of us have subconscious biases that, that get in the way of our relationship with one another. Sometimes they're age-related. Some people don't like young people, unless they're your own grandkids. Some people don't like old people, unless they're your grandparents. Sometimes our biases are based on gender or ethnicity or class. We might not even see them as biases. We may not even recognize them in ourselves, at least at first. But even if you don't intend them, others feel them. And they violate the great command to love one another. Any of these things can rob us of the way of life God has planned for us. The way of life of love 
and fellowship and connection of community. And hopefully when the Holy Spirit nudges you, you don't defend yourself in whatever that area is, but you just repent and recalibrate and say, he's called me to be someone who loves my neighbor as myself, who loves like Jesus loves. But let me warn you, when you're not paying attention, Satan is going to pop up and go, hey, look at them and point out how they're different and maybe how they're wrong and maybe how you're right. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Humble yourself, trust God, obey daily, step by step by step. And here's what I'm hoping, that as we together live a life of courageous love, courageous obedience, courageous relationship, breaking whatever barriers might get in the way, sometimes being uncomfortable, others will see it and they will experience the oneness that Christ brings us and they'll worship him. They'll say, there's something about that person. Reminds me of somebody. Oh, maybe that's what Jesus was like. And that's my prayer for you. Father, today, I don't ask you that you help us not to be afraid. I ask that you help us to be courageous. That we act in spite of the fear that rises that seems to be natural within us. I pray that you help us to be merciful and kind. I pray that you help us be loving and accepting. I pray that you will help us understand that it's not about me, but it's about how we together can live lives in relationships with one another and with our world that brings honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. May we live with courage, step-by-step obediently. In Jesus' name, amen.